Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, February 1st, 2023, the 742nd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So we're going to bounce around a bit today, but let's start with something we spent some time on yesterday, which is the COVID narrative as it continues to fall apart and the mainstream continues to provide excuses, limited hangouts and vague mea culpas for their role in what history will likely record as one of the greatest crimes against humanity ever. 
We're in this strange period where people are saying things like, okay, fine, you were right, but we didn't know at the time. We were just trying to do the best we could with the limited information we had. It was a brand new virus, and this brand new virus probably works in such different ways than every virus that has ever preceded it. Don't you understand how very, very dangerous this virus is? Just look at the numbers on the television, assume they're all real, and then assume that because those numbers are so large, this virus must be different. And that was essentially the entire justification for lockdowns, for social distancing, for mask mandates, and then in some part for the vaccines. But the mask mandates were their own separate and special thing because we were told that putting a mask on your face just isn't a big deal. It's not a big deal. So everyone should just go along with it. Better safe than sorry. If it helps even a little bit, it's worth it. If it saves just one life, it's worth it because there's no downside. You see, it's such a a small thing to ask, just a small favor, just a, a tiny change in your lifestyle when it comes to, you know, breathing. But it's such a small thing, even if it only helps a little bit, we have to do it. And if it's such a small thing that only helps a little bit, then it also can't be that bad, you know, because it's such a small thing. So if there's a downside, that downside must be a small thing too. We have at least some potential gain on one side. And then because it's such a small thing, there's basically no downside. So in the risk reward analysis, it comes out way ahead. And somehow that made sense to people, even though masks actually do have a substantial downside. And we are once again confirming that they have absolutely no upside. This is from last night in just the news. Little to no difference. Massive mask meta-study undermines remaining COVID mandates. An international research collaboration that reviewed several dozen rigorous studies of quote-unquote physical interventions against influenza and COVID-19 through last year failed to find even a modest effect on infection or illness rates from masks of all qualities. Published in the peer-reviewed Cochrane Database of Systematic Reviews, run by the British evidence-based medicine charity Cochrane, the study raises new doubts about ongoing mask mandates and public health recommendations worldwide. The CDC is still recommending masking in areas with high transmission levels, fewer than 4% of U.S. counties, as well as indoor masking to protect high-risk contacts in medium counties, 27%. Masks are still required in educational institutions, in democratic strongholds, such as New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Washington, and California, according to the Daily Mail. Boston Public Schools denied its quote-unquote temporary masking protocol in early January was a mandate following a public letter against the policy by student Enrique Abud Everetize, I guess. South Korea is still requiring masks on public transport and in medical facilities after dropping COVID mandates in most indoor settings, including gyms, Monday, Reuters reported. 
The researchers for the Cochrane study are affiliated with a geographically disparate range of institutions in the UK, Canada, Australia, Italy, and Saudi Arabia. Half are affiliated with the Institute for Evidence-Based Healthcare at Australia's Bond University. The corresponding author is the University of Calgary's John Conley. Unlisted author Carl Hannigan, director for the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford, gave a brief summary of the study population and findings on Twitter. He wrote, we included 11 new randomized controlled trials and cluster RCTs, 610,872 participants in this update, bringing the total number of randomized controlled trials in the meta-analysis to 78. The team added 11 new RCTs and cluster RCTs, which randomized groups of subjects rather than individuals, to its prior review from November 2020 for a total of 78 studies. The additions included COVID pandemic trials, two from Mexico and one each from England, Norway, Denmark, and Bangladesh, the latter two well-known internationally. The Danish study had trouble finding a major journal willing to publish its controversial findings that wearing surgical masks had no statistically significant effect on infection rates, even among those who claimed to wear them exactly as instructed. Mainstream media overlooked red flags in the Bangladeshi mask study, which found no effect for surgical masks under age 50 and a difference of only 20 infections between control and treatment groups among 342,000 adults. Cochrane itself had a spat with Instagram in November 2021 over sharing purported COVID misinformation, even though the group does not accept, quote, commercial or conflicted funding, end quote, and its funding partners include the U.S. National Institutes of Health and U.K. National Institute for Health and Care Research. So study groups receiving official government funding were still cited as misinformation. And of course, that's because we have to remember misinformation, misleading information is any information that might steer you away from the central narrative and thereby be misled. The central narrative is intended to lead you to a certain place. If any information conflicts with that and you do not end up in the place the central narrative intends to lead you, well, then you've been misled. The updated Cochrane Review included 10 cluster RCTs in the community and two with healthcare workers totaling about 290,000 participants, comparing the effect of surgical versus no masks. They measured risk ratios, which below one means the intervention improved the outcome and above one worsened it. The closer to one, the less effect it had. In the community, mask wearing, quote, probably makes little to no difference, end quote, in either influenza-like or COVID-like illness, 0.095, or laboratory-confirmed infections of either virus, 1.01. While the confirmed infections finding had a much wider confidence interval, the team called both these results, quote, moderate certainty evidence, end quote. Researchers had more trouble determining the effect of respirators such as N95s, which the CDC only recommended two years into the pandemic, versus surgical masks. Five studies, four healthcare and one household, with a total of 16,000 participants, found a risk ratio of 0.7 
for clinical respiratory illness, but deemed it very low certainty evidence with a wide confidence interval. The RR was 0.82 for influenza-like illness deemed low certainty with a smaller confidence interval. They were more confident in results for respirators versus surgical masks on lab-confirmed influenza. RR of 1.1 among the 8,400 participants in those trials and no difference when the household trial was excluded. Former White House COVID advisor Michael Osterholm tried to discredit one of the studies in the Respiratory Surgical Review led by researchers at Canada's McMaster University when it was published in December in the Annals of Internal Medicine. An expert on personal protective equipment and regulatory compliance who warned colleges nearly two years ago their mask mandates violated disability integration law told Just the News she has reviewed many of the RCTs the Cochrane team studied. Megan Mansell said she expects to keep seeing, quote, unreasonable responses when a decent RCT is published, end quote. She cited her interactions with critics of the McMaster study, whose, quote, primary complaint is that the individuals weren't monitored for N95 compliance 24-7, which is both outside the terms of safe wear for the apparatus and wholly unreasonable, end quote. Mansell wrote a lengthy and somewhat technical essay last week explaining why even a, quote, perfect rate of capture, end quote, by N95 still provides, quote, plentiful enough potential exposure for infection based on severity of illness, immune response of a given individual and progress in the course of illness. While the Department of Health and Human Services fact sheet on N95s say they can filter particles under 0.3 microns, which can include SARS-CoV-2, Mansell said they aren't rated to capture matter below that threshold. The sheet also warns N95s can't filter gases and vapors, which include aerosolized COVID. And N95 maker Honeywell sets the minimum at 0.3 microns as well, she said. More than 90% of exhaled particulates have been shown to fall under 0.3 microns. Mansell's essay says, citing a January study in El Sevier journal Environmental Research, such small matter can stay aloft for, quote, hours, even days, depending on air exchange rates within the given space, end quote. She wrote, citing a National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases research letter to the New England Journal of Medicine. Wait, that's the NIAID. That's Anthony Fauci's group. The claim that N95s actually filter better under that threshold depends on a misunderstanding of Brownian motion, which, quote, only occurs when there is essentially no velocity, such as breathing in and breathing out, Mansell said. So this article has gone pretty wide today and the understanding that there is absolutely no proof in the world that masking did anything or could have done anything to slow the spread of an aerosolized virus is now finally seeping its way into the minds of even the biggest COVID superfans. Now, will they stop masking? Of course not, because the masks are not there to stop COVID. The masks are there to show other maskies that you're one of the good ones. These people want to get credit for their good behavior, and they are more than happy to get that credit from the 5% 
of the population that also wants credit for their good behavior. Now, also on COVID, this is from The Federalist this morning. Court slaps down California's attempt to muzzle doctors who dissent from COVID groupthink. Now, a lot of people are familiar with this story because this caused a semi-major freakout last year when the news of this attempt first went wide. But this was immediately one of those things that you would have to assume would get blocked at a certain point in the process of it being challenged in court and then appealed and moving through the court system. And it turns out it has. A federal judge halted California's attempt to censor doctors when, last Wednesday, the court enjoined the state statute that banned medical professionals from spreading purported misinformation or disinformation to their patients about COVID-19. The decision represents the latest victory against the authoritarian edicts that quickly followed the outbreak of the pandemic three years ago, but continue to this day. In August of 2022, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law Assembly Bill 2098, AB 2098, adding a new provision to California's extensive regulations governing the professional and ethical conduct of physicians, regulations that ban practices ranging from human cloning to performing a pelvic exam on an unconscious or anesthetized female patient without her knowledge or consent. The new statute sought to stop what the legislature called a pernicious threat to public health. Doctors who spread misinformation or disinformation to their patients about COVID-19. Specifically, AB 2098 provides, It shall constitute unprofessional conduct for a physician and surgeon to disseminate misinformation or disinformation related to COVID-19, including false or misleading information regarding the nature and risks of the virus, its prevention and treatment, and the development, safety, and effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines. The California law defines disinformation as misinformation the physician deliberately disseminated with malicious intent or an intent to mislead, while misinformation is, quote, false information that is contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus contrary to the standard of care. So basically, all the doctors have to do whatever they're told by the federal health authorities. When the CDC says something that is now carved in stone and every California doctor is supposed to echo those sentiments, not disagree with any of it and only advise their patients in the exact way prescribed by the CDC or California wants to take away their medical license. In passing the law, the California legislature made multiple quote unquote findings including facts purveyed by the CDC, that there is a much higher risk of death for unvaccinated individuals from COVID-19 than the vaccinated. The legislature also found that, quote, the spread of misinformation and disinformation about COVID-19 vaccines has weakened public confidence and placed lives at serious risk, unquote. And that, quote, major news outlets have reported that some of the most dangerous propagators of inaccurate information regarding the COVID-19 vaccines are licensed healthcare professionals, end quote. So the California legislature is saying don't trust the doctors unless the doctors say the same thing the CDC says. Trust the science, but only some of the science. 
Trust the experts, but only some of the experts. Trust the doctors, but only some of the doctors. Soon after Newsom signed AB 2098, a group of doctors and organizations representing doctors filed suit in a federal court in California. The plaintiffs in Hogue et al. versus Newsom et al. argued the statute violated their First Amendment rights to free speech and their constitutional right to due process. The plaintiffs in Hogue then filed a motion for a preliminary injunction seeking to prevent the state from enforcing AB 2098 until the resolution of the doctor's constitutional challenges. On Wednesday, presiding judge William Shubb, a George H.W. Bush appointee, granted the motion and entered an injunction barring California from enforcing the law. In his ruling, Shubb first held that the plaintiffs had standing or the right to sue because, if allowed to go into effect, the doctors faced an actual injury in the form of disciplinary action. The court then held that the plaintiffs were likely to succeed on the merits of their due process claim, quote, likelihood of success on the merits, end quote, is the controlling standard at the preliminary injunction stage because the terms misinformation and contemporary scientific consensus were unconstitutionally vague, making it impossible for a reasonable person to know what the law prohibited. The court further stressed that the phrase contemporary scientific consensus lacks an understandable meaning because it has no technical meaning within the medical community and was left undefined in AB 2098. COVID is a, quote, quickly evolving area of science that in many aspects eludes consensus, end quote, the court noted, reasoning that while the phrase contrary to the standard of care is a clearly defined term in law, by adding the undefined language, false information that is contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus, the California legislature made the statute grammatically incoherent. And that is a wonderful phrase for virtually everything we see from regime communists. All of it is grammatically incoherent when you're using the actual definitions of words. And that, of course, is why the communists are constantly attempting to change the definition of words so that they can use multiple definitions in any case and then fit what they want to do. They can make it conform to virtually any reality. False information that is contradicted by contemporary scientific consensus. Even just the word contemporary alone is enough to do the work there because we have seen the science, a.k.a. the contemporary scientific consensus, change countless times over the last few years. We've even seen it change from what it was to something new back to what it was again. And we are told that the explanation for that is merely that science evolves. Because the court concluded the plaintiffs were likely to prevail on their due process claim, given the vagueness of AB 2098, Shubb held he did not need to reach the plaintiff's argument that the California law violated the First Amendment by preventing medical professionals from openly discussing issues with COVID-19 shots, alternative treatments, and therapies for COVID-19, or the merits of universal masking with their patients. Shubb, however, added that AB 2098 clearly implicates First Amendment concerns. Following Wednesday's decision in Hogue, the corporate press quickly coalesced 
around the vaccine denier narrative by highlighting that one of the plaintiffs in the case was the Children's Health Defense, an advocacy organization connected to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Then, rather than focus on the significance of the court's decision and California's blatant violation of doctors' constitutional rights, the left-leaning media intoned that the Children's Health Defense has, quote, long promoted false information about standard childhood vaccines, end quote. So now there are standard childhood vaccines. These are the ones that are off limits to conversation. You can't just say the COVID-19 vaccines are bad and then wonder, hey, maybe other vaccines might be bad. Is that worth looking into? You can't do that because those ones are already standard. They're protected by everybody knows. This tact tracks the media's approach to AB 2098 following its enactment when the legacy press reported favorably on the new law, claiming the California legislature was, quote, trying to strike a balance between free speech and public health, end quote, while highlighting laws passed in other countries that criminalized the spread of vaccine misinformation. You got that? They're trying to strike a balance between free speech and public health, things that are not on the same continuum at all. They're simply using public health as a justification to curtail free speech. And we have heard that argument from many corners of the Internet. Telling people that masks don't work is almost exactly like shouting fire in a crowded theater. That's what we're told. If you tell people that masks don't work, even though they don't work, you are still taking away that <laughs> minute possible benefit that they might have especially after we've already agreed that there's absolutely no possible downside to masking anyone. And since we've determined that all correct scientific knowledge must pass through the CDC at some point in order for doctors, the actual people treating patients, to be able to say what they think, then what we're setting up is an opportunity to curtail free speech Anytime that speech ever conflicts with anything the CDC says, because, of course, the CDC is the public health authority. The reporting at the time also quoted supposed experts who, while admitting the law would likely not survive the First Amendment scrutiny, nonetheless opined that, quote, it doesn't mean it isn't a good idea, end quote. People have died because they made choices based on false information spread by people in a position to know better, one so-called expert said. And strangely, that sentence taken out of the context that the speaker intended actually is correct. People have died because they made choices based on false information spread by people in a position to know better. And those people were all at the CDC and the FDA and public health authorities and in politics and on the television and in the media and all of the corporate partners involved with all of that. They all told people that the vaccines were very safe and very effective and were actually needed to protect people from a disease that couldn't kill them, which the vaccines do not do. They don't protect anybody. And so the pandemic would end through the use of a vaccine that does not prevent infection or transmission. So absolutely everything the public health authorities have said on virtually every aspect of the 
coronavirus, very deadly pandemic has been wrong. And because of that, people have lost trust in these institutions. And the only way to restore trust in these institutions and make sure that everybody says the things that these institutions say is to make sure they can't say anything else. And if they can't say anything else, well, then no one will ever get the idea that some other opinion other than the one from the CDC might be correct. The court's decision in enjoining California's AB 2098 represents a solid victory in the fight against the authoritarianism pushed under the auspices of protecting the public from COVID-19. But the sentiments voiced by the legislature and experts that they know better should nonetheless trouble Americans. And of course, that's a good point. And it's great that the courts have decided this way. Obviously, this law would be terrible for doctors and for patients. It would be terrible for just about everyone except for the regime that's trying to enforce its own narrative as the only narrative. But it's worth pointing out that at the time where this issue first arose at some point last year, a lot of people freaked out like this is the onset of the dystopia we've all imagined and all thought about and all heard about. And if this stuff was set into law, they would be right. But we do have the courts to combat this kind of stuff. And the courts fail pretty often about a wide range of issues. But that doesn't mean that they fail all the time. It would be great if people didn't have to constantly fight back against all this stuff. But the truth is, if they're going to keep putting it up, people are going to have to keep fighting back. And the solution is never to just assume that the regime is going to win and then just freak out and give up like everything is lost. Everything is not lost. Now, speaking of how everything is not lost, Carrie Lake is in court today, continuing to argue her case on appeal about the rampant fraud and election manipulation happening in Arizona. But that's not the only election fraud news we have today. Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, tweeted this this morning. Harris County election ballot paper shortage far bigger than initially estimated. It's so big, it may have altered the outcome of elections. It may necessitate new elections. It will necessitate new laws that prevent Harris County from ever doing this again. Now, I did not expect a statement this direct coming from Greg Abbott, who has consistently taken half measure approaches in many aspects of his job, most particularly with the immigration problem in Texas, but certainly with the elections. Texas does not have free and fair, legitimate elections. They might not be as bad as some other states, but there's no real way for us to know that because their elections are corrupted in the same ways as other states. We're not sure what the scale is, but it's not small. And the constant narrative about how Texas is becoming a purple state and will become a blue state does nothing to help it. That's the narrative that runs while the regime is installing the election fraud system in any given state. So here's more on the problems in Harris County. This is from KHOU in Houston. 
election ballot paper shortage bigger than estimated. The shortage of ballot paper at some Harris County voting centers on Election Day was more widespread than the Elections Administration Office estimated, according to a KHOU 11 analysis of equipment and voter turnout records. The county's post-election analysis on the extent of the shortage was, quote, largely inconclusive. After reviewing help desk logs and calling presiding and alternate election judges, the county estimated 46 to 68 voting centers ran out of their initial allotment of paper. KHOU 11 investigates compared ballot paper packets allocated to the total number of votes cast and discovered 121 voting centers did not initially receive enough paper to cover voter turnout. The county allotted each of the six locations six ballot paper packets, or enough for 600 ballots. But the total votes cast exceeded that amount, sometimes by hundreds of ballots. For example, 946 Election Day ballots were cast at the Bel Air Civic Center, 990 at Warner Elementary School, and 1,037 at Salyards Middle School. The Election Day controversy left some voters and election judges furious. How does this happen? How do you run out of paper? Voter Sharon Gania said on Election Day, I've never heard anything so basic as running out of ballots. Longtime election presiding judge Terry Wheeler said. The Harris County Republican Party, which has a pending lawsuit against the Elections Administration Office, said it wasn't aware of the scope of the shortage. It was worse than what we even knew, GOP chair Cindy Siegel said, and there's no excuse in my mind. Siegel, an accountant by profession, said ensuring there is enough paper to go around should not be a difficult process. The obvious thing is to go look at history, she said. Yeah, that would be obvious. An Elections Administration Office spokesperson said the county did look at historical data to determine the proper ballot supply for each voting location. But KHOU 11 investigates discovered on Election Day, 52 voting centers received less paper in 2022 than ballots cast in 2018. For instance, Briar Grove Elementary School, Goodson Middle School, and Faith American Lutheran Church received 600 paper ballots in 2022, but four years earlier, more than a thousand Election Day ballots were cast at each location. I mean, it's mismanagement at best, Siegel said. We as Harris County voters deserve better. KHOU 11 Investigates repeatedly requested an on-camera interview with Elections Administrator Clifford Tatum over the course of three weeks. He ultimately declined to answer questions on the record, so we approached the public official while entering the county administration building. I'll talk with you after we have a meeting with the court commission on Tuesday, and then we'll go from there, okay? Tatum said. Harris County Commissioner Tom Ramsey put the issue of voting irregularities on the commissioner's court agenda for its regularly scheduled meeting Tuesday. Tatum has previously said supplemental paper was delivered to some polls throughout Election Day, but his office provided no specifics on how much was sent or to what locations. And how about that for a strategy? Just run out of paper in Texas, just like they did in Arizona, just like they did in other states, only on Election Day. Why? Well, Republicans vote on Election Day. And elections are simply just too important to be decided by people who would vote on Election Day and not do what the regime wants them to do, which is vote early.
And it's funny how they shift the responsibility there. And it's also worth noting that a lot of the Republican establishment goes along with it. They basically say to voters, well, we gave you three weeks to vote. You waited until the last day. And hey, mistakes were made. Next time, don't wait till the last day. Do what we told you to do because you know we can't be trusted not to rig the system against you. Now, changing subjects without a segue, let's talk about the fake president's documents again. This is from the New York Post this morning. Who blocked the National Archives from releasing Biden classified docs find months ago? House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer has said the National Archives and Records Administration was prevented from notifying the public about the initial discovery of classified documents from President Biden's former D.C. think tank office. Comer told Fox News's Hannity Tuesday night that Archives General Counsel Gary Stern said in a closed door interview he could not tell lawmakers who ordered the archives not to put out a press release announcing the November 2nd find at the Penn Biden Center. There are only two people that could have given those orders, and that's either Department of Justice with Merrick Garland or the White House with Joe Biden, Comer said. So it shows right there that this Department of Justice and this White House is interfering with this. FBI agents reportedly searched Biden's former office in mid-November, days after his attorneys found classified records improperly stored there less than a week before the midterm elections. The Fed search at the Penn Biden Center, which was reported by multiple outlets Tuesday, was not previously disclosed by the White House, the Justice Department or the president's personal attorneys. It's unclear whether agents found any additional classified material after Biden's lawyers reportedly found around 10 classified documents at his abandoned Penn Biden Center office near the U.S. Capitol. Additional classified materials were later discovered in December and January at Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware. Comer said preventing NARA from releasing information about the classified materials demonstrates a double standard between how Biden's case is being handled and how the discovery of sensitive documents at former President Donald Trump's Florida estate was handled. If you go on the National Archives website, there's pages and pages of press releases and information about the FBI raid into Mar-a-Lago and Donald Trump's possession of classified documents, Comer said. But there's nothing on the website about Joe Biden, he told Hannity. Nothing that Joe Biden's done with respect to mishandling these classified documents is normal. Take into consideration that he's also being investigated for influence peddling with our adversaries around the world. And it's even more concerning. Comer went on. Comer also discussed first son Hunter Biden's overseas business pursuits while he had access to the Wilmington House where classified documents were stored. Look. More information comes out every day where Joe Biden's son, especially as well as his two brothers, have had shady business dealings with our adversaries around the world. And part of what they would do when they would make a pitch to these shady characters in these foreign countries is prove to them that they actually had direct access to their brother and that they had direct access to people at the highest levels of our federal government. So when we learned that Joe Biden has classified documents from all over the place and that Hunter Biden especially lived in his house where he had those classified documents, we became extra concerned. And that's why this investigation is of the utmost importance for the United States Congress, as well as the American people, Comer added. 
Hunter Biden, who is under federal investigation for possible tax fraud, money laundering and illegal foreign lobbying, frequently visited the Wilmington document repository, according to records from his former laptop, and even listed the home as his own residence on a 2018 background check form. So as I believe I've said on this show and certainly on other shows, it looks like we are seeing a problem with NARA come into focus. And we have heard from Donald Trump and others that NARA is essentially run by regime hacks and exists to serve the regime. And it seems to be the case as this document issue unfolds so far with Trump, Biden and Pence and may expand to people like Barack Obama and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and whoever else. You have people like Steve Bannon and Cash Patel referring to the people at NARA as librarians, and that is essentially what they're supposed to be. But it seems like they've taken on a bigger role than that, which is basically to protect regime presidents and allow them to access or take or move pretty much whatever they need to access or take or move. And that can be a pretty big deal when it comes to moving classified documents, especially with the intent to sell that information to our foreign adversaries, as the Bidens do, but also to prevent discovery by people who might not be serving the regime. This is speculation, but I imagine that we will at some point begin seeing reports on how documents were moved out of NARA prior to Donald Trump coming into office, because as a non-regime president with access to all that information, who knows what he's going to find? I don't think it's a stretch at this point to say that all of the regime presidents who are still living would have pretty obvious reasons to cover up many of the things that they did while in office. And the great document extravaganza rolls on. That is not the only document extravaganza news of today either. This is CNBC. FBI found no classified documents in search of Biden home in Rehoboth, lawyers say. FBI agents on Wednesday morning searched the Rehoboth, Delaware beach home of President Joe Biden for more than three hours but found no documents marked classified, his personal lawyer said. Agents, quote, took for further review some materials and handwritten notes that appeared to relate to his time as vice president. Biden's lawyer, Bob Bauer, said, oh, some materials and handwritten notes. So if you were to take a classified document and copy down the information by hand and then take it home and then include it in an email that you then send to your potential Ukrainian business partners, would that be transmitting classified information? Potentially, sounds like that's what that is. But nonetheless, the documents found would not themselves be materials with classified markings. So I wouldn't be so sure that these reports about how the documents were not classified actually gets the fake president off the hook in any way. A senior law enforcement source who spoke with NBC News corroborated Bauer's characterization of the outcome of the FBI's search. Perfect anonymous sources. The planned consensual search 
is the first publicly known time the FBI searched the Rehoboth residence. Agents did not obtain a warrant for the search, which began at 8.30 a.m. Eastern and ended at noon. They had not gotten warrants for two prior FBI searches of other locations linked to Biden. And the reason they're not getting the warrants is because they just form an agreement so that there doesn't have to be a raid. And so the fake president can claim that he was cooperating with law enforcement the entire time, you know, because of transparency. Biden's personal lawyer, Bob Bauer, previously said that the president's lawyers searched the Rehoboth House and the Wilmington residence on January 11th. Those attorneys found classified records in Wilmington, but not in Rehoboth, according to Bauer. The FBI searched the think tank office in mid-November after Biden's personal lawyers found classified records there on November 2nd. The FBI searched Biden's Wilmington home on January 20th. And it is rather amazing that they have been searching Biden's residences for three full months now, still attempting to find documents. That doesn't sound like some sort of minor problem that is going to go away quickly. And it doesn't sound like Joe Biden takes classified materials as seriously as he says. White House spokesman Ian Sams on Wednesday would not say how many classified documents in total have been found at the Biden-linked locations. In an earlier statement Wednesday, Bauer said, Today, with the president's full support and cooperation, the DOJ is conducting a planned search of his home in Rehoboth, Delaware. Under DOJ standard procedures, in the interests of operational security and integrity, it sought to do this work without advance public notice, and we agreed to cooperate, the lawyer said. The search today is a further step in a thorough and timely DOJ process we will continue to fully support and facilitate. So more searches, more documents, and still no raids. Now, speaking of raids, let's shift from the fake president in the United States to the comedic actor in Ukraine and his main benefactor, the Ukrainian oligarch Ihor Kolomoisky. This is from Reuters today. Ukrainian authorities raid home of billionaire Kolomoisky. Ukrainian state security officials searched the home of billionaire businessman Ihor Kolomoisky on Wednesday in what several media outlets said was an investigation into possible financial crimes. The Security Service of Ukraine, the SBU, did not immediately reply to a request for comment about the reports and Kolomoisky could not be reached for comment. A senior governing party official confirmed Kolomoisky's home had been searched, as well as that of a former interior minister, but did not state the reason for the search. Photographs circulating on social media appeared to show Kolomoisky, dressed in a sweatsuit, looking on in the presence of at least one SBU officer inside a large wooden home. Reuters could not immediately verify the authenticity of the images. Kolomoisky is one of Ukraine's richest men and a one-time ally of President Volodymyr Zelensky, who launched a crackdown on wealthy businessmen known as oligarchs in late 2021 before Russia launched its full-scale invasion. And Kolomoisky wasn't merely a one-time ally. Kolomoisky essentially placed Volodymyr Zelensky in office. Kolomoisky, who is from the central city of Dnipro, and owns an array of assets, including one of Ukraine's most influential television channels, backed Zelensky's campaign in 2019. And that's exactly right. And that television channel used to have 
Zelensky's television show. Ukrainska Pravda said Wednesday's search related to an investigation into the alleged embezzlement of oil products and evasion of customs duties, and that it was carried out by the SBU and the Economic Security Bureau of Ukraine. Ukrainian anti-corruption officials are also investigating a case in which they suspect eight people of embezzling assets and funds from a state-controlled oil company formerly tied to Kolomoisky. The authorities sanctioned him in 2021 due to his involvement in significant corruption. U.S. authorities have also alleged Kolomoisky and a business partner laundered stolen funds through the United States. Kolomoisky has denied any wrongdoing. So we have the corrupt and illegitimate regime in the United States, the corrupt and illegitimate regime in Ukraine. What were they all working on together? Well, BioClandestine is back on Twitter his handle is at war clandestine, and I would suggest you follow him. This is a thread that he put out the other day once he got back onto the platform, and this thread has now been viewed 11 million times. He writes, now that I have everyone's attention, allow me to address why U.S. establishment politicians are sending tanks, jets, weapons, equipment, and $100 billion plus dollars to Ukraine. It has nothing to do with Ukrainian citizens and everything to do with deep state assets and secrets in Ukraine. Let's go back to when and where it all began. Flashback to 2005. Then Senator Obama and Senator Luger visited former Soviet biological and chemical facilities in Ukraine and established the U.S. deep state roots in Ukraine to, quote unquote, counter bioweapons. And that's what the whole plan was. We've discussed this on the podcast before, mainly almost a year ago now when this conflict began and clandestine's been on this subject the entire time. He has done some of the seminal work on this subject in relation to the conflict in Russia and Ukraine. And he links an article from the Washington Post in 2005 titled U.S. to aid Ukraine in countering bioweapons. The supposition here was that the former Soviet Union had all of these bioweapons facilities in Ukraine, and now it's not the Soviet Union anymore. So the U.S. needs to get in there and make sure that these bioweapons labs aren't dangerous anymore. When speaking of the labs in 2005, here's how they were described by Washington Post. The labs were, quote, part of a Cold War network of anti-plague stations that supplied highly lethal pathogens to Soviet bioweapons factories. So when Russia does anti-plague research, it's bioweapons. And he cites the Washington Post article. But when the U.S. does defensive gain of function slash directed evolution research, it's not bioweapons. And of course, the other name for that is dual use research of concern. In 2005, Washington Post admits that anti-plague research results in the production of highly lethal pathogens, a.k.a. bioweapons. Seems their tune changed in 2022. And he cites an article from March 11th, 2022 in the Washington Post by Glenn Kessler. This is the Washington Post fact checker. How the right embraced Russian disinformation about U.S. bioweapons labs in Ukraine. Remember a year ago when the biolabs stopped existing, even after Victoria Newland 
admitted they did. The U.S., led by Obama, passed the Nunn-Luger Cooperative Threat Reduction Act of 2005. The U.S. took over former Soviet labs and facilities, supposedly to destroy stockpiles of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons in Ukraine. Obama opened the floodgates for the deep state, created biological weapons programs with the Ukrainian government, and established connections for U.S. oligarchs to build biolab companies in the lawless land of Ukraine. Companies like Biden's Metabiota. Then the situation turned sour. Under U.S. supervision, Ukraine fell into civil war in February 2014 under Obama. In the disarray of the war, State Department, Hillary Clinton, and the CIA took full control of Ukraine's government. Victoria Nuland facilitated a regime change, and we've discussed that quite a few times on this show. He links a Reuters article with the headline, Leaked Audio Reveals Embarrassing U.S. Exchange on Ukraine-EU. And he's referring to a call between Newland and others where they discussed who the new president of Ukraine would be. They decided that, not Ukrainian citizens. Newland, who spilled the beans on the fear of, quote, Russian forces getting their hands on the biological research in Ukraine, end quote, engineered the color revolution in Ukraine. They started a civil war, then picked their puppet to run the government, creating a deep state proxy. That is the history of Ukraine. That is how Volodymyr Zelensky, the comedic actor, eventually ended up becoming president. The regime's evil twin faction in the United States, the deep state and the CIA overthrew Ukraine's government and installed their own guy. Now with complete control of the Ukrainian government, then the Bidens begin their dirty work. Biden visited Ukraine 13 plus times, securing U.S. funding for Ukrainian oligarchs, then used his power to fire a state prosecutor who figured out Biden's kickback and laundering scheme. And he includes the video from the Council on Foreign Relations event where Biden spoke. Here's what he said. You've probably heard this before. But it's always nice to add it back in when we're talking about this to remember that this is who Joe Biden is. And this was the foundation for the Ukrainian impeachment hoax. This is what was being investigated in Ukraine by Rudy Giuliani and others. This is what the Ukraine impeachment hoax was designed to cut short. To convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over. Right, I guess the 12th, 13th time to Kiev, and, uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had, they were walking out to the press conference and said, No, nah, I said, I'm not going to, or, or we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, You have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, Call him. I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting a billion dollars. I said, you're not getting a billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> got fired. And they put in place someone who was solid. So literally the definition of a quid pro quo in the fake president's own words. Back to clandestine. 
So the reason why all of our tax dollars are in Ukraine is because Ukraine is a deep state proxy controlled by the ruling families of the DNC and Soros. They are trying to protect their assets and secrets in Ukraine, most consequential of which is their biological activity. The reason the U.S. mainstream media went all out pro-Ukraine is because the media is owned by the pharma companies via advertisement money. The pharma companies who rely on the biolabs in Ukraine to create pathogens so their vaccine scheme can profit. Starting to make sense? The reason the FBI and DHS went full Orwell and weaponized big tech to censor all reporting on the biolabs in Ukraine is because the intel community is compromised by the deep state, the deep state who can't let people find out about their pathogen production scheme. And so this is essentially the story that clandestine has been telling the whole time and that many of us have been expanding on the entire time. And now it is finally reached the Twitter sphere and will eventually have to be dealt with by the mainstream. You can see the reaction of the more mainstream Twitter obsessed journalists on that platform and their reactions are essentially shock and surprise like this is the first time they've heard anything about this. Now, I'm not saying they're lying. Maybe this is the first time that they're really hearing about this. That itself is kind of shocking. It's been a year almost that people have been talking about this. The reason people don't know is because of big tech censorship and because our culture was enforcing the notion that everyone had to support Ukraine. And if you didn't support Ukraine, well, you're a Russian asset. Because remember, with the conversation about Hamilton 68 a few days ago, they have been pushing now for seven years that Russian bots are what's controlling all of the dissent in this country. Anytime someone is disagreeing with the central narrative as passed down by the regime, they are a Russian bot, a Russian troll, part of a Russian disinformation operation. Of course, the entire Hamilton 68 thing has fallen apart. There never was a Russian bot operation skewing American political conversation. They made that up. But of course, Twitter as the intellectual kids table requires that the people who want to be popular on that platform never talk about any of these subjects. And so some of the most foundational issues that inform us about what's actually happening between Russia and Ukraine are totally unknown, totally ignored and totally unaccounted for. People are happy to just go with, oh, Putin is a very bad man. Just think about those poor Ukrainian citizens. I can't believe Putin would launch this unprovoked invasion. And that line of thinking is just repeated over and over again because no one can brave their way out of it. And at some point, it's worth wondering, is this censorship? Is this fear from the Twitter set who imagined themselves as prominent journalists of integrity, does all of this have a death toll? We were told by the state of California that information disputing what we're told by the health authorities like the CDC is actually dangerous and actually has a death toll. And so it must be censored. But the information they wanted censored was true. 
Now we see other true information that was censored to the point where virtually no one knows about it. And we can be next to certain that that lack of information, the censorship of this information has itself extended the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And that actually has a massive death toll that's totally unnecessary and would likely be supported by almost no Americans if they simply knew what was going on. But the censorship, of course, has made that impossible up until now. And that censorship continues. People still believe that Ukraine has a chance of winning against Russia. And we're not only going to win against Russia, we're also going to take back Crimea. And unless Russia gives Crimea back, well, then there's not going to be any peace negotiations. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to send them a bunch of tanks and a bunch is 31 and they'll probably be blown up immediately if they even reach the battlefield, which they probably won't. But we're going to say that we're going to do this because that makes it seem like we're helping the poor, brave Ukrainians, almost none of whom are still there because something like 10 million of them have fled the country and another 20 million of them are in the parts of Ukraine that are just Russia now. And it really is important to keep that part in mind, too. The people of those four regions in the Donbass all had referendums and voted overwhelmingly to join Russia. They are now Russian, regardless of what the international community says. Same thing with Crimea. Ukraine is barely even a country anymore. But let's hear a bit more about how things are going in Ukraine, especially vis-a-vis -vis these tanks that are supposed to arrive and save the day. This is Colonel Douglas McGregor. Okay, thank you. By the way, can I add one thing that a lot of our people don't seem to understand about these tanks? Please. We promised 31 M1 series tanks. They have to be built from scratch. And people have said, well, why is that? Well, it's very simple. We have a form of armored protection on the existing M1 series tanks that is some of the very best in the world, if not the best. That was developed over many years. It's a very complex composite form of armor. We will not allow tanks with that unique armor to fall into the hands of the Russians. And we have to assume, based upon the Ukrainians that have lost, we estimate 7,000 vehicles, including at least a couple of thousand tanks and two or 3,000 other armored vehicles that have either been destroyed or fell into the hands of the Russians. We have to assume that these could. So the decision was made to build 31 M1 series tanks, but apply the 1970s armor to them. Ah. So that if they fell into the hands of the opponent, it, it would not be a security risk for us. We would not lose this advantage that we have. But there's something larger here, and this is very important. There's a lot of nonsense going on about what we're going to send. And we, you've heard all the analysts that are worth a damn and honest point out it's not going to make any difference. I think we're preparing an apology in advance. I think everybody in Washington in a few months is going to say, well, we did all we could. Look at all that we sent. We just couldn't make it happen. And I think that's where we're headed. In the meantime, millions of Ukrainians' lives are destroyed. The state is destroyed. The nation is destroyed. Who, who will be held responsible for that? If they point the fingers at Putin, he's the wrong man. He didn't want to do it. 
He was the reluctant fighter in this whole mess. He held off for years. He begged us to listen. You can go back all the way back to George Kennan, who pointed these things out, and right up to, to Ambassador Burns, who is now the director of the CIA, who wrote the famous memo, Niet means no, don't advance the borders of NATO to Russia. All of this is well known. That's not the story we're being told by the mainstream media, is it? We are being told that these tanks are going to hit the battlefield in no time. We've made the decision to send them. They're about to save the Ukrainian army. And the only threat here is whether or not Putin takes this as some new sign of massive aggression and then goes and nukes everybody. Well, why would Putin do that? Why are we even having that conversation? Because Putin, unlike America's media and unlike American citizens, knows that those tanks do not pose any immediate threat to Russia whatsoever. We are just having another episode of the tail wagging the dog in Ukraine, as we have seen every week or so for the last year. None of this had to happen, as Donald Trump has noted countless times, and all of it could be ended on a brief timeline, as he has noted countless times and again noted today in new video statements. A major disaster is brewing. If I were president, the Russia-Ukraine war would never have happened, never in a million years. But even now, if I were president, I'd be able to negotiate an end to this horrible and rapidly escalating war within 24 hours. It can be done. You have to say the right things, not the wrong things. I think we helped lead Russia into that war by saying, well, if they took a small part of the country, that would be okay. Such a tragic waste of human life. When you look at all that's happening there, those cities are obliterated. First comes the tanks, and then come the nukes. Get this crazy war ended now. It can be done. And in fact, it's easy to get done. When I'm president, we will be a strong country again. People will never be playing these games like they've been doing to the United States of America. They don't respect us anymore. They respected us greatly two and a half years ago. They don't respect us anymore. Thank you very much. So that's number one. Here's number two. The situation in Ukraine is very dangerous, explosive, and escalating by the day. Joe Biden's weakness and incompetence has brought us to the brink of nuclear war. And now Biden is doing what he said 10 months ago would lead to World War III. He is sending in American tanks. It's far past the time for all parties involved to pursue a peaceful end to the war in Ukraine before this already horrific catastrophe spirals out of control and ends up leading, indeed, to World War III. And this would be a war like no other war, because this would be a nuclear war. As I have said many times before, Russia's invasion of Ukraine would have never happened if I was in the White House. Not even thinkable, not even a possibility. We must end this ridiculous war and demand peace in Ukraine now before it gets worse. And believe it or not, it would be easy to do. It would be very easy to do. And those are awfully confident statements from a guy who is sure to lose the primary to Ron DeSantis or to Nikki Haley, who's now decided to run for some reason. Aren't they? 
you almost get the idea that something else is going on and that Donald Trump is playing a different role than someone who is sort of running for president and just weighing in on little videos for social media. It's like he knows what's happening there and like he knows the history of the region and what the stakes are and who's actually fighting and where the money and weapons are actually going and what Vladimir Putin's goals actually are and what the global regime was doing in their provocations of Putin. Maybe he actually listened to what Vladimir Putin has had on the table the entire time as the conditions of peace. Should we imagine that Donald Trump needs to come in to negotiate with Putin or is he laying down the terms for the global regime currently being decimated in Ukraine and its support of the fake and illegitimate president, Joe Biden? Now, I don't know what's going on exactly, but a picture does seem to be emerging. And Donald Trump is the one speaking with the force of the office of president, not Joe Biden. Joe Biden's the guy who said a year ago that sending tanks in would start World War Three. And now he's the guy sending tanks in is the only way to prevent World War Three. And it's strange, isn't it, that the person who actually won the 2020 election is the one who sounds like he's acting as president and the one who has the respect of the parties actually involved and controlling what's happening over there, while Joe Biden can't even figure out when the coronavirus pandemic emergency will end and instead is just going to leave it to the Supreme Court. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel-couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!